Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, if we've not met, my name is David Rapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer, at Deer Creek and also uh, going to be planting a new church eventually in the Golden area. And I'm glad that we get to celebrate Christmas together. How many of you uh, woke up really early this morning and couldn't go back to sleep? I figured I'd see some, some shorter hands sticking up. Uh, I woke up early this morning too and couldn't go back to sleep, uh, but not because I was thinking about what might be under the tree, but because I was thinking about that we get to look at God's word together this morning on Christmas. And uh, what a great way to celebrate Jesus's birth together, to gather where he says he's going to meet us and worship him together. So I'm thrilled to be here with you. I wonder, uh, do any of you have a favorite Christmas movie uh, maybe one that you, you watch every year. I know some of you probably have traditions and you watch something. Anybody? It's a Wonderful Life. Die Hard? Good. One of the best Christmas movies ever. Yes. Maybe The Grinch or A Christmas Carol. Uh, one of my favorites is the Charlie Brown Christmas. And there's a particular scene in that that I think is really relevant for, for us this morning. Uh, in the movie, during the Christmas pageant, uh, Charlie Brown says... Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. And then he starts yelling. He says, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And isn't that the most significant question for us to reflect on together this morning? What is Christmas all about? Well, lucky for Charlie Brown, he's got a good friend named Linus uh, who's ready. And he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And Linus walks out onto the stage and he says, lights, please. And then he recites uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, a passage that tells us about the shepherds in the field and the angel that makes this great announcement of a birth, the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Linus says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that's what happened. Those are the events. That's what Christmas is all about, that God sends his son Jesus into the world. This morning, we want to reflect on why that all happened. We know the what of Christmas. What about the why? Why is Christmas and what is the heart behind it? And so we're going to look this morning at just a few verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, uh, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light, the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that as we look at this part of your word, a part of your word that may be familiar to many of us, would you give us ears to hear in fresh ways the heart of God the Father that moved him to send his son at Christmas 
Would you open our eyes to see Jesus? Open our minds to grasp the depth of God's love and open our hearts to receive that love and to be changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John describes the world that we live in as a place where people walk in darkness and unbelief. And he tells us that Jesus is the light who has come into the world. And we celebrate that at Christmas. We sing hymns like, O come all ye faithful. And one of the verses of that hymn says, God of God, light of light. Jesus is the light. And the question is, how do we naturally respond to that light? And John tells us in verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Now, why would that be? Well, he tells us because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so what he's saying is that we naturally don't like the light. We actually naturally hate the light because it exposes us as being evil and it exposes the wicked things that we do. And none of us really likes to be exposed, do we? None of us wants the things that we do that are bad or that are shameful or that are embarrassing to be put on display for people around us. We want to hide those things, pretend that they don't exist. We're desperately afraid that people might see into us, see those embarrassing things, and we're afraid of what they think of us or will think of us if they know. How will they respond? Especially if they know what we've done and what we still do. Beneath all that fear is the fear of condemnation, the fear of being judged, of being seen as inadequate. And this leads some of us to keep our distance, to be self-protective in relationships. Maybe we become evasive in conversation, never going beneath the surface. We might even avoid relationships. For some of us, this this fear of being judged or of condemned might be the thing that, that keeps us away from church much of the time. And ultimately, our fear of being exposed, our fear of condemnation might actually keep us away from God. It might make us want to keep our distance from Jesus. But how does Jesus respond when the bad, the embarrassing, the shameful things are exposed? Well, there's a story uh, in the same gospel, in in John's gospel, the beginning of chapter 8, that isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And so it's likely not a part of what John originally wrote, but at the same time, it's likely something that actually happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus is teaching a crowd in the temple, and the religious leaders bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Now, imagine how you would feel if you got dragged barely clothed, into the middle of a church worship service. And they just announced what you had been caught doing. How would you feel? I mean, some of you just desperately hope that that nobody sees your internet browsing history. (laughs) Or that, that nobody looks at your Netflix watch list. What if everyone saw the thing that was most shameful to you? So the religious leaders say to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And it's interesting that they focus on just the woman here when actually the law of Moses said 
Um, if a man commits adultery with a wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But they kind of ignore that, focus just on the woman. But Jesus says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So what's Jesus doing there? Jesus is forcing everyone in that crowd to reflect on not only how well they have kept the seventh commandment against adultery, but how well they have kept every commandment. Let him who has no sin, who's kept all the commandments perfectly, be the first to throw a stone. And so everyone there is forced to recognize that they fall short, that they are sinful. And each one of us is called to recognize the same thing, that we actually aren't perfect people, that we actually are sinful, as uncomfortable as that might be. And so this crowd disperses and Jesus is left alone with this woman. And Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now notice Jesus doesn't say go and and do whatever you want. Do whatever you think will make you happy. He says, go and sin no more. But hear these most significant words. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. We naturally hate the light. And so that makes us want to sometimes avoid Jesus. But what is it that we have to see about the heart of of Jesus toward us in order to want to come to him. Why did he come? John tells us in verse 17, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save. He came to save people like us, people like me and you from our sins. He came to save us from eternal condemnation. So what do we have to see about the heart of God to want to come to him. Why did God send his son? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what God is like. Several of my family members, unfortunately, have been sick this week, which is is a terrible time to not be feeling well. But yesterday I came home from our Christmas Eve services to find some of my family members binge-watching the show Stranger Things. Maybe some of you have seen that. Um, And I should let you know that I actually, uh, when that show came out several years ago, um, watched the first several episodes and I thought, this is great. This, you know, this embodies my childhood. I should wait to watch this um, till when our whole family can watch this together. Well, that never happened. And and so now my family's binge-watching it on their own, several of them going through it for the second time. And I'm not bitter or anything. Uh, I've just resolved that I'm never going to wait for my family for anything. If I want to watch something, I'm going to watch it. If I want to eat something, I'm going to eat it. Not, Not really. But last night I was eating dinner and kind of, you know, overhearing part of this show that they were watching. And there was this this scene that kind of arrested my attention because there was this angry father who was pounding on his teenage son's door and screaming at him to open the door. And then when the son finally opens the door, this father just starts berating and belittling his son and heaping all kinds of condemnation on him about what a terrible brother he is and saying all kinds of mean things that I haven't heard since the 1980s. And and I imagine that in a room this size, there are a number of you who had fathers or have fathers that have 
acted like that towards you. And I fear that that may shape your perception of what God is like as a father, what his attitude is toward you. Others of you may just have this kind of overwhelming sense that that God is perpetually disappointed, that he's frustrated with you, that he only begrudgingly interacts with you because he has to. I'll admit that as a father, I all too often lead with what I'm discontent with, what I'm not pleased with, criticism and exasperation. Why did you do that? In fact, just a few days ago, I was the father banging on, or maybe not banging, but at least going to the door of one of my own teenagers and and leading with, you didn't do that, did you? And the unspoken but clearly communicated was because that would be so stupid. God is not like that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son so that sinners like me and you could be set free from condemnation forever. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, which means that if you believe in Jesus, that's the end of condemnation for you. There is no more condemnation, no more condemnation to fear. And that's incredibly freeing because most of us spend so much of our time and so much of our energy running on these various performance treadmills, trying to prove ourselves, trying to measure up in whatever playing field is most important to us, whether it's socially or at our jobs or at school. And if we're honest, many of us are exhausted from simply trying to prove ourselves. And no matter how hard we run, how long we run, we never quite get there. And so some of you hear voices in your head every day, voices of condemnation, maybe your own voice, saying things like, you know, you're not a good enough mother. If you were, you'd be doing X, Y, Z for your kids like so-and-so is. If you were a better mother, your kids wouldn't be acting like that. Some of you hear voices of condemnation saying, you're not really doing anything significant in this life. What are you doing that makes a difference? Or you're a terrible friend. Think of all the people that you haven't kept up with. I regularly wake up in the night hearing my own voice screaming in my head, telling me about all the people and all the situations that I've not invested in enough. I've not given enough attention to how I've fallen short or feeling condemned about words that I know I've said that probably have hurt people. Believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, means the end of condemnation. It means that his perfect performance for you is enough, that there's no more condemnation for you to fear for failing to measure up, for failing to have it all together. Sometimes we hear the roar of condemnation for real things that we know that we have done, You just told that thing that you said you wouldn't tell, you lying gossip. Or you looked at that again? What kind of a person are you? Trusting in Jesus' death, his perfect death for you, means the end of condemnation. And so the question is, do you believe that? And what we see in this passage is that there is belief and there's unbelief. There is exception and there is 
Acceptance and rejection, there's condemnation and there's freedom from it. Maybe you're here and you're inclined to want to be friendly toward Jesus. You're appreciative of him, but you're not sure that you want to completely commit to him, to worship him, to follow him wherever he might lead. Maybe you think that he's got some really good insights. He had some good ideas about the way that people should live together and treat one another. But John is saying that if you don't believe that Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sins, then you're actually condemned. And the reason is, he says, because you've rejected the only source of help. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation can't be found anywhere else. The Apostle Peter says the same thing in the New Testament book of Acts in chapter 4. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one pathway to God. Jesus is the only way. He says in verse 18, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so you either follow Jesus or you flee from him. Those are our two responses. Refusing to come to Jesus, refusing to trust in him, to receive his gift of life means condemnation because it's rejecting the only cure for your sin. So if you're here this morning and and you're not trusting in Jesus, you're not following him, ask yourself, what is it that's keeping me away? Maybe it's that you don't really trust him, that you don't really trust that he'll take care of you or have your best interest at heart. Or maybe you think that there are other places to find life and satisfaction. In his Narnia series, C.S. Lewis writes, uh, in the book, The Silver Chair, about two children, Jill Pole and Eustace Scrub, who find their way into the magical world of Narnia. And immediately Eustace Scrub falls off a cliff. So he's kind of out of the picture for a little while. And Jill sees this lion and she is terrified. And so she stumbles through the woods, desperately thirsty, and she hears water running. And she comes to a stream and she's about to run to it and drink, but then she stops because the lion was lying on the grass in front of the stream. And I'm just going to quote Lewis here rather than try to paraphrase. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. 
Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Friends, the God of the Bible invites you to come and have your deep soul thirst refreshed in a way that only he can refresh it. In the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, which we've already heard some of today. In chapter 55, God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's saying, you can't pay for what I'm offering you. You can't earn it. It can only be received as a free gift. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Why are you filling, up, filling yourself up with things that ultimately can't fill you, that ultimately can't satisfy you? Why are you looking for life and satisfaction apart from me? And he goes on, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. What is it that we have to see and believe about the heart of God in order for us to be drawn to him instead of wanting to flee away from him? We've got to be convinced that these words are true from verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did God send his son? Out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's only when you really see and sense and believe the love of God that you'll actually be drawn toward the light instead of wanting to flee from it. What God is saying to you this morning through his word, no matter who you are or what you've done, is don't you see how much I love you? He wants you to see the magnitude of his love, the greatness of the gift that displays that love, the giving of his own son. Think about what that means. God gave, verse 16. That's connected to Jesus's incarnation, his birth. But it's also connected to Jesus's death. Immediately before verse 16, which is a, a pretty well-known verse, we read in verses 14 and 15, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What it means that the son of man would be lifted up means that he's going to die. You may have heard or sung the hymn where we sing, lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Think about the cost of that gift. In the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, God tells a man named Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Think about the 
anguish of every step that this father would have to take climbing up this mountain, knowing that he was going to have to sacrifice his son. Think about what it would have been like for him to tie up his own son and then look into his own son's eyes and then the terrible fear that would have been racing through his heart as he lifted up the knife. But of course, that knife never fell because God intervened. God told him not to hurt his son. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. I know you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead. God spared Abraham's son. But what we see in John is that God did not spare his own son. He sent him. He gave him. Not for people like us who were, who were loving him and so ready to obey him, but for rebels like us, for people who are inclined to run away, to find life away from him. And why did he do that? Because of his great love for the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He says, whoever believes, which means that, that this God is not the God of of Jewish people only, but of every nationality. So no matter what race or background you come from, he's being offered to you. And the big result is eternal life. And so because God loved the world and he sent his son for the world, we're called to go into the world for the world. If we've received this great gift, the gift of Jesus, we're called to love the world and give so that the world might find life through God's Son. So what does that mean for us? What might that mean for us? It certainly means that if we are followers of Jesus, we're called to share this same good news, to tell other people what we call the gospel. And so that causes us to ask, what is my, what is my attitude toward the world? The world that's so often lost and rebellious and disinterested, often antagonistic, what is my attitude toward the world? Is it an attitude of condemnation? And we need to remember that Jesus came into the world to save, not to condemn, which means that no one, not me, not you, is saved except from out of the world. Jesus says in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that Christians were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, which means that every follower of Jesus, everyone who today would call themselves a Christian, was rescued from out of the world. There's no other way to become a Christian. If you're a Christian today, you were in the world when the good news came to you through some means, through some channel, through somebody telling you about Jesus. You couldn't have become a child of God except for God's radical love for the world that caused him to give his son. And so do we have a heart for the world? Are we inclined to only want condemnation for those who are in open rebellion? We need to remember where we came from. We need to remember where we were and what God did for us. 
We need to remember that if we, were, if we are Christians, we were once in darkness under God's wrath and condemnation when the light of the gospel came to us. So how do we respond to that? Well, after Jesus dies and he rises, he comes to his disciples and John records this in chapter 20, verse 20 of his gospel. When he, this is Jesus, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I am sending you. Just as the Father sent me into the world, I am sending you. And friends, there are surely people in your lives who need to hear the gospel. People in your neighborhoods, people at work, people in your school, people that God has placed into your life who need to hear the good news that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you might be the very means that God intends to use to tell those people, to tell that friend about Jesus. And you might not feel qualified, but the only qualification is that you know your own need, that you yourself are not perfect. You know your own need, but you also know your Savior. God sends his son into the world, and then Jesus sends his church into the world. And so we send missionaries, we send church planters. We're all called, if we're followers of Jesus, to give generously that the gospel might go out. This Christmas season, we've got a special Christmas gift that you may have seen on the screen where we are collecting funds for a new church plant in the DU Inglewood area where J.P. Watson and his wife Carrie will be planting starting a new church next year. We'd encourage you to consider giving to that if you've not yet. And some of you might be called to go with them to help start a new church or to go with one of our future church plants. And there would be a cost to that. There would be risk. How does Christmas free us from our fears? Maybe our fear of giving financially. Maybe our fear of talking to our friends about Jesus. Or maybe that fear of condemnation. That deep underlying sense that we don't measure up. We know the things that we've done. We know what's, what's not okay about us. What is it that could free us from our fears of condemnation? Well, going back to a Charlie Brown Christmas, there is this scene um, when, when Linus is reading that passage that, um, that I became aware of uh, through, through a, a blog by a guy named Jason Sarosky. Uh, in this Christmas pageant, Linus reads Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And when you think about Charlie Brown, what do you think about? What's most iconic about him? He's got this yellow shirt with a, with a brown zigzag. What about Schroeder? His piano, right? What about Linus? Linus, his favorite prop is his blanket. He's always got that thing. You never see Linus without his blanket. I know some of you, like me, probably had a blanket when you're little. Some of you still have it tucked in your pillow. That's fine. Linus is the poster child for, um, for blanket dependency. <laughs> this, uh, this author, Jason Swarovski, in his blog, points out that although Linus is in other ways very mature and thoughtful, he simply refuses to give his blanket up until this moment when he simply drops it. 
In that climactic scene, when Linus shares what Christmas is all about, he drops his security blanket. And it happens when he's reading from Luke chapter 2, which I'm going to read. Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. Linus is reading. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. And right then, you can go watch this, right then Linus drops his blanket. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. At the announcement of Jesus' birth, Linus drops his blanket. Jesus' birth frees us from our fears. Swarovski says the birth of Jesus allows us to simply drop the false security we have been grasping so tightly and learn to trust and cling to him instead. What Jesus' birth says to us is that God sent his son in order that we could have life with him, that he actually wants us near, that he's not a begrudging father, He's not a God who stays at a distance. He's God with us. Come near in Jesus. And Christmas tells you how much, how deeply God loves you. Maybe you've never thought to reflect on something so simple as that. But Christmas tells you that you are deeply loved by God. And if you're deeply loved by God, then that means that you are unshakably secure. If the God of the universe loves you enough to give his greatest treasure to make you his treasure, then there's nothing else that you need fear. So maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're sensing for the first time that God really does love you. And maybe maybe you sense that he is inviting you to come to him, to trust in Jesus, to drink from the water of life to be satisfied. I hope you'll come. I pray that you will come to him. As we continue to celebrate during this Christmas day and season, let us sing of the wonder of Christmas and the love of God that caused him to give his son. And let's cling to Jesus as our only only security blanket. And then let's go out and tell other people about him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has come, that you are reigning and ruling right now, and that you've already proven your great love for us by giving your life for us. So would you give us the confidence and the security to live in light of the calling that you've given to us, to go into this world, to communicate the truth that because of your death, And trusting in you, people like us, imperfect people like us, can experience the freedom of knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us rest in that and live out of that. Amen.